so for those of you who don't know, almost all Christians believe in evolution. Did you know that? In evolution at a micro level, meaning small changes within, um, within a species. Okay, do you understand that? Almost, there's almost no Christian who disputes that species change within their own species. Macroevolution is, does one species evolve into a different species? Okay, so just, just to be clear on some of our terminology, evolution is accepted by almost every single Christian on this planet, period. So you don't have to fuss about that, but there is that distinction between macro and micro, and we can look more about those things. But on the macro level, I was beginning to see lots of, okay, that's really interesting. If we just look at the data, we see what looks like the progression in different ways. Now, I'm not going to sketch all that out right now or anything like that, but I was having to hold intention. But the interesting thing was, again, Russ was a committed evangelical Bible-believing Christian, and he was teaching evolution at uh, evolutionary biology, essentially at the university level. And I thought, what do I do with that? Um, I felt called to ministry in the middle, kind of the middle of my university career. And so I was really wrestling with um, some of these questions. I, I knew that God called me to finish this degree, to act as a, a person on mission with him at the university. It's one of the reasons I was there. Uh, but I also loved the natural world and wanted to know more about it. So um, long story short, I asked my pastor, at a, again, a solid evangelical, it was a Mennonite brethren, Bible-believing church. And I said, how old is the earth? And he said, 4.6 billion years old without missing a beat. And I had never heard that before. I never heard a pastor say that. That's for sure. So I said, well, how, like, how did you get to that place? The guy's name was Mal Fair. And, uh, and, and he said, well, you know, the earth sure looks very old, is what he said to me. I said, yeah, that's, that's true. All the, all the evidence I see in my classes seems to suggest it's very old, very old. Um, but that's not how I was taught that I could read the Bible and see it that way. And he said, yeah, um, some people say kind of that God made it to look old as a test of our faith. And then he said to me, God doesn't lie to us, Dave. He's not in the, he's not in the business of deceit. He's not trying to make things look one way and then deceive us to see if it's a test of faith. He said, that doesn't make sense of who God is. God isn't a liar. He's not a deceiver. So now I'm wrestling with the question, how do I, have I maybe been taught to read the Bible in, in a way that was actually not accurate, perhaps, to what the Bible was actually teaching. Maybe the Bible wasn't actually teaching us about how old the earth is, but it had other things. So I still held that intention. I didn't know what to do with that exactly, but here I was faced with, so my own experience was I, uh, coming into contact with Christians who believed the earth was very old and believed that the Bible was God's supreme authority for all of faith and life, and they were able to function in that somehow. And I couldn't, I'll tell you that, I couldn't through the whole time I was in that degree. If you asked me how old was the earth, I'd say uh, six to 10,000 years old because that's the only way I can understand the scriptures to be teaching. And that is my supreme authority for faith and life, even though all of the evidence, it seems, in the natural sciences says otherwise. So I just had to hold these two things in tension. I went to uh, do my graduate studies. So my master's degree is in biblical studies. And it was while I was doing my biblical studies degree that I found out, oh, wow, there is, the Bible is far more interesting, and the way that we read it and what it means is far uh, different, actually, than, than the quite simple way I had learned as a young person. 
um, and probably because I was young and, and simple, uh, but also, you know, just that was kind of, it was, there was a period in history where that was essentially the only thing. If you wanted to be a Christian, there was one thing you could believe about this. That was the end of the story. And so once I got to um, beginning to really study the Bible and understand it, uh, working on original languages and finding out that, wow, there's a lot of different ways things can be happening here, um, learning mostly about how to read a genre. Genre is a type of literature, and, and you say, okay, how does this, how do we read these, this type of literature that this is? And what, and the very most important question, if you're going to study the Bible at all, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, if you want to study the Bible and, and really understand what it's all about, you have to have as your first question, what did the original author intend to say to the original audience? If you start with 21st century scientific questions and you bring it to a, a, a book that was written not for 21st scientific, 21st century scientific questions, or we could be asking completely wrong questions of the text. And do you think you'll get the right answers by asking the wrong questions? You won't. And so the big question is, what does the author intend to teach to the original audience? If you take the Bible seriously, that has to be your first question. Once you've answered that question, then you can ask, what does that mean for us now? If by asking that question you find out, actually the Bible says very little, possibly nothing, in answer to our 21st scientific century questions, first century scientific questions, pardon me, um, then you go, okay, what was it about? And that's taking the Bible seriously. And then you can wrestle through, okay, so what does that mean for our science? Does it have implications for science? And I'm going to tell you tonight that actually it does. Even what was said in the first century, in the, um, I'm going to say that Genesis was probably written in, in somewhere, possibly by Moses. That's kind of the traditional understanding. It may have gone through edits afterwards um, to be in its final form, but I, I still think it was probably written by Moses. That's what, that's what Jesus says, so I'm going to go with Jesus. He says, you know, when Moses wrote this. Um, <clears throat> so that's what I would take. And so the question is, what was Moses trying to say to the audience Moses was addressing? What questions would they have? We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night. Or not, no, next week, pardon me. We're going to dig right into issues of um, the, the original context that Moses was writing into. And we'll see as we look at Genesis chapter 1 in particular, we'll see how he's addressing a particular set of questions. Um, and spoiler alert, I think they have nothing to do with formational history or how the earth gets formed. They're very different set of questions that he's answering. And unless we understand the ancient Near Eastern culture and the questions that that culture would be asking, we won't, we won't be able to rightly understand the text. Then we might be able to answer questions about how old is the earth and is the Bible teaching us an age of the earth or something different or that kind of thing. Does that make sense? So you have to understand and hear me that the Bible is my supreme authority for faith and life. Actually, that's not quite right. God is my supreme authority for faith and life, and I believe he inspired these scriptures to be written so that we could know him and love him, and do the things he's called us to do. My role as a, <clears throat> as a Christian, if, and if you're a Christian, this is true too, that whatever the Bible is teaching, our goal is to submit to that. If it's teaching that the earth is very young, 
I need to submit to that in the teeth of all the evidence. If it's not, I need to submit to that. Okay? So that's my, that's my starting place. I need you guys to hear me that I'm not saying, well, I can just kind of leave the Bible in a different century and just think about science and how great it is. Not at all. I'm starting with a conviction that, and like I told you, my, my whole undergraduate degree, I held this intention because I didn't know how to read the Bible any differently. So I just held them intention and said, I believe the Bible. What I'm learning in school seems true too. So I'm just going to hold these together somehow, but I don't know how. We're going to talk a little bit about the relationship between those two things a little bit more tonight. Quick recap from, that was longer than four minutes, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But it was good, right? It's helpful. Okay, so for those who weren't here, that's where I'm coming from, and you need to know that. Um, Last week I also said there's four reasons, there's more than that, but there's four reasons that I think are really important for us to look at the question of uh, God and the sciences. Number one, Jesus says uh, that the first command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So a failure to love God with our minds is sin. If we don't think well about our world, we are actually violating the first and most important commandment according to Jesus. So thinking well about the earth, about the Bible, about the world God made is a command of God. Jesus says it's the most important one, and that includes our minds. Does that make sense? That's important. So very first thing, it's the love of God. That's why we study the natural world. Number two, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. I mentioned how there are sciences like medicine and environmental studies. And these sciences are very helpful in neighbor love. When we learn more about the human body, we're able to care better for our neighbors. We're able to love them better. Um, Environmental sciences, I gave the example of the Ajax mine proposal, it's going through review. The reason why we do an environmental impact assessment is to see, will this have undue environmental and health and economic uh, and psychosocial impacts on our city or not? We have to be able to assess that well and say, what will be the best thing? Why? For our neighbors. And so I have spent hours and hours poring over KGHM's proposal stuff. And I've spent hours poring over um, the, the people who have said, like SLR's report in response to it. Why? Neighbor love. I love my city. I want to make sure that if this mine happens, that it will be a good thing. And if I see things I think are, are, are concerns, that I raise those concerns and address them. Um, by the way, it's the last day to make comments to the environmental uh, uh, environmental assessment office. Have you guys done that yet? Anybody know about that? No, just a little plug for that. If you if you think there's a lot of good reasons that this mine should go in, you can tell the environmental agency that that those what those reasons are. If you think that there's some major concerns that their science actually isn't very good, and that it looks like they actually might be lying to us, tell them that too. Please do. Please tell them that. Whatever it is, not saying what I think are major gaps in their methodologies and the spin that's happening there. That's another story. Um, so we, we, we look at the science for the sake of neighbor love. Will this um, project, will this whatever, but here's another thing that is really important to see. The applied sciences, um, 
medicine, environmental studies, and many other applied sciences, engineering, whatever those things are that we work them out, we say, that's neighbor love. Actually, they are all based on what you might call the pure sciences, mathematics, physics, uh, biology, chemistry, biochem. At the very, like, we're not trying to solve any problems. We just want to understand what's going on better. So the, the, the applied sciences can't function without the pure sciences. And that's important to know. So if it's like you're going into career in science and what that means for you is laboratory and research and not answering human questions, you can love God and love your neighbor by doing that. In fact, all those other sciences are going to be based off of what you do in those pure sciences. that makes sense? So love of God, love of neighbor. Third thing is mission. That mission matters that uh, we need to be able to speak truthfully with our neighbors about the relationship between God's word and God's world and be honest about it and be able to show um, that we have actually thought about God's world as well as God's word. And then the last thing was that truth matters. Whatever is true is God's truth. It won't be a surprise to God. So if a, a scientist who doesn't believe in God discovers something true about the world, is it true? It's true. And it's God's truth. It wasn't a surprise to God. And because I'm a Christian, the truth matters to me. Even if knowing that truth, or if there's something that sure seems like it's right about what a scientist is saying, it will send me back to the scriptures, and I'll have to ask some big questions. Am I reading this text right? Maybe there's some gaps in how we've seen this. And I give the example, I mean, Galileo is an obvious example. Um, was sort of turned over the Aristotelian view of the world, which was that the sun was revolving around the earth. What did Galileo propose? No, it's not that way. It's the earth that's revolving around the sun. But he met a lot of resistance from the church. Why? Because there were verses that seemed to suggest that the sun rose on the one end of the earth and set on the other. And they were reading that in a literalistic manner, meaning they thought this was talking about a fact of science, not a theological statement. So it sent the church back, and they, and they now know, and we now know, of course, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, but it's the other way around. And it, and it forced the church, so good science forced the church to reread some of its foundational text and said, I think we're actually reading it wrong. If, if the Bible is telling us the truth, I think we've actually misunderstood how to read this text. That, that's, so truth matters. That matters to, to a Christian person. Um, we said a lot of other things, but I can't just repeat last week, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump forward. I guess the last thing I'd say is this, is that Christians, um, I would say Christians have a view of truth that kind of works like this. There are certain things that Christians believe and then if you didn't believe them, you couldn't really say that you're a Christian. That's called orthodoxy. That's kind of the edges around what, what is Christianity. And the Apostles' Creed is a good example of that. It says, starts with, we believe in God the Father Almighty. You can't really be a Christian if you don't believe in God, right? Okay, fair enough. And it's a personal God. It's God the Father, and he's the Almighty One. So they're saying very specific things about who this God is. And then the next line is, creator of heavens and earth. To be a Christian, you have to be able to say those things. And it will go on to speak about Jesus and his death and resurrection. It'll speak about his coming again that will happen. It will speak about the, the universal church, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. Those are all things that are sort of the core elements of Christianity. 
But then you get to what we might call secondary or tertiary questions. These are where Christians can rightly agree or agree to disagree on, on matters that they say, you know, I don't know how God's sovereignty works with free will. We might disagree about that. Okay, does that mean one person's a Christian and the other is not? Uh, nor does it mean, maybe, that the way we read the early chapters of Genesis um, means someone's in the Christian faith or outside of the Christian faith. Did you know, and I've been kind of just reading the church fathers, so the early church, what did they write about the early chapters of Genesis? You know what's really interesting? Is how varied their understanding is. It's not like they all read it in the same way. They didn't. Some read it very much as an analogy of the Christian spiritual journey. Like, really? I think that was Origen who said that. So he kind of said day one is kind of like when a Christian first comes into the faith. And day two is like this. And it's kind of like the lights go on. And then there's this separation of, and, and he kind of, he has this very uh, analogical reading of it. Interesting. Then other people say, well, no, um, when it says that the God created the, the earth in, in a day, well, it says in, in the book of Second Peter that to, to the Lord, you know, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. So the time factor doesn't really matter. That second century, people are already saying that. They're saying it's not teaching us about literal days. Second century church is already is reading this document and saying, well, no, it's not. So there, there's not like one single reading of this document and all of a sudden now that there's modern science, we have to re-read it differently. No, it's actually been read very differently throughout the centuries. And what we're needing to do is look at how do we best understand, how, what is God trying to say to us through this text, really and truly? What is it about? So that is our goal in, in interpretation. That's my not four-minute summary of last week. Um, here's what I need to say tonight. In um, Christian theology, and I uh, can't remember who said it exactly for sure first, but there's an understanding that God reveals himself not through one book, but through two. The book of, which one's which here? Nature on this side, and the book of Scripture. Uh, we have uh, verses like this in Romans chapter 1. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What is Paul saying? He'll go on to talk about how people are without excuse if they don't know God. If they don't know that there is a creator God, Paul says, they have no excuse for saying that. Why? Because God's divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature can be seen through what? Nature. Through what he has created. Um, so there's not just one book, but actually two. Uh, let me tell you a little parable here. Um, there was... A scientist, actually. He was driving down the road along the coast. It was a beautiful night. He had just been watching the stars uh, from a favorite point, and he was just—he was just really enjoying his time out. And he was driving along the sea, and he stopped because he saw a flashing red light about a kilometer and a half out into the sea. And so he was actually—you know—he was—he was a physicist, and so he was really interested in in the light, um, the sort of the tone of the light. Uh, thinking about the waveforms, and, and he started just really enjoying and th thinking through 
how this light, what was, what was making it blink the way it was, the, the, um, the energy it was using. Was it, a, was it a certain type of light, a halogen, um, an LED? He was kind of trying to work out some of these really interesting, fascinating questions. And there was a little boy who was riding home madly. He had stayed at his friend's house a little too long, and he was, he was afraid he was going to be you know, in trouble when he got home. He was kind of missing dinner. And, uh, and he's riding by, and he slams on his brakes on his bike, and he sees this light flashing out in the ocean, and he panics, and he rides home as quickly as he can, and he says, call the Coast Guard, someone's drowning, there's a distress signal off the end of, of, at, this, at this place. Question is, if, if I asked, why is the red light shining, what's the answer? Who answered it correctly? The physicist or the little boy? Who's with Josh on They Both Did? What's that? Or they both were, depending on what question you're asking. Yeah, you're right, and you're right. Uh, The answer is both. Both are correct. Why does the red light flash? Because there's energy being sent to the bulb. The bulb is constructed in this way. It flashes because it's got uh, whatever capacitor inside. I don't know anything about physics. I'm just making this up now. But it's something is telling it to flash. And uh, yeah, I'm not an electrician. Someone who could correct me who knows this stuff, I don't. Um, So there's what we call a primary cause. That's the person in the boat who is flicked on and the reasoning behind what's going on, they've made the red light flash because they're in distress. There's the secondary cause, the electricity, how the light was made, the internal workings of it. Both of those answers are true. They're true in what they're describing. If one's describing the physical, yes, secondary cause. If one describing the primary, yes. Um, why does the kettle boil? Because the water's been turned up to uh, 100 degrees Celsius, and when it hits that point with the element heating it from below, then it boils. Is that true? Yes. The answer is yes. I wanted a cup of tea. Is that answer true? Yes. All right. Do. <laughs> That's not true. Well, it is actually kind of true, but I'm not going to turn the kettle on for it. Um, The point being, there are such things as primary causation and secondary causation, and we have to remember that as we go into a conversation about science and faith, because we might actually find that a full and complete description of a human on a biological level doesn't, and we'll see this later on, doesn't preclude a full and description of a human being on a theological and spiritual level. They don't rule each other out. You say, this description of a human on a biological level, is it true? You'd say, yes. Does it rule out that, that this human being is also made in the image of God and has a soul and a spirit that can connect with the living God and is made for relationship with others and to serve the purposes that God has given them? Well, yeah, that's true too. So you see, there's, there's the primary cause. Why do humans exist? Be another great question like that. Love is the theological answer. Because God wanted humans to exist. And he made it happen. 
Then there's maybe what you might call, that's agency. Why did something happen? Who is the cause of this? What is the cause of this thing? And then there's another question, which is the mechanism question. How does God go about doing that? Those are two separate questions, aren't they? In a sense, one is a primary causation. The other is secondary causation. One is about agency. The other is about mechanism. And a Christian, we're going to need to think about, if we're going to take seriously that God has revealed himself through the natural world, if we're going to care about and learn about the natural world, take seriously God's book of nature, that he does reveal himself to us, then we'll have to think well about the sciences. We'll actually be encouraged to engage in the sciences. In fact, it was, you know, um, theology was called the queen of the sciences when, first, when universities first started. Universities uh, didn't distinguish in a sense, in a major sense, between theology in, in that it wasn't downgraded to, well, that's just about private beliefs. You know, science is about the facts. Uh, no, those two things mingled and intermixed in the sense that many of the first scientists did science out of their Christian conviction, their belief that God was revealing himself through the natural world and that God made the world in an orderly fashion. Therefore, we can um, we can learn about the world. It will be the same tomorrow as it was today. That's called contingencies, kind of how in, in sort of philosophical talk about that. But the world is um, contingent on God's making it happen the way it does every day. So modern science is actually based out of a Christian worldview. So we don't have any fear as Christian people engaging in the natural sciences. But we have to be able to distinguish some of these primary from secondary causation things, or we'll get muddled. That's where our thinking, I think, gets a bit mixed up. And, uh, and we're not able to see how um, we could actually hold these two things, not in major tension, but actually they speak in harmony and work together. That all truth is God's truth, which is revealed through nature and which is revealed through the Bible, are going to speak with and with the same voice. Um, but there may seem to be uh, disagreement at different points. Is that disagreement real? Um, I would say we will eventually find out that no, it's not. At the points where science and the findings of science disagree with Christian theology, we'll find that those things actually aren't uh, in conflict, but we may need more information. Um, but that's getting into next week and the week after that. Uh, so let's, let's stick to the kind of this idea of, of two books uh, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 19, 1 to 4. I kind of quoted it in my prayer as we began our worship time. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words, nor sound is heard from them. Yet their voice or their message goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. The psalmist knows that God speaks through the natural world, and uh, and and it would be some. We would be missing out greatly if we didn't listen to what God is saying through it. Um, I read uh, <clears throat> a blog post from Richard Dolstrom, and he he recounts um, his wrestling with learning to listen to what God was speaking, what God was declaring, by taking seriously God's book of nature. Uh, I'm going to read a bit of his story and, uh, and of his experience of coming to think more critically about the, the book of nature. Here's what he writes. Psalm 19, which I just read. Roman, or Psalm 104, which I read last week. Romans 1, which we read just now. And 10, the book of Job and the parables of Jesus. All these passages make clear that God has spoken 
not only through the scriptures, but also through creation. God has spoken so clearly that all people are without excuse because the evidence of God's character is present for all to see. And then he quotes Romans 1.20 again. We believe that these words from Romans 1, are, pardon me, from Romans 1 are true for all people, for all time, including scientists in the 21st century. When people study the stars with a telescope and the smallest elements of the universe with microscopes, then reach independent conclusions pointing in a similar direction regarding origins, we do well to listen. If we don't, we'll be forced to create our own subculture of alternate science, one that swims upstream, not of one discipline, but of virtually every field of science, from astronomy to geology, chemistry to biology. Uh, And then he goes on to say, I was a lay consumer of this alternate science for decades. What does he mean by this alternate science? Um, It it, it would be kind of the so-called Christian Christian science. Put that in air quotes, just by the way, just listen. Um, Of groups, uh, Answers in Genesis would be a good example of this. Um, I would argue that they're, they're not doing actual science um, because the scientific method doesn't start with the answer. So those folks who are kind of in the answers in Genesis and they're doing so-called Christian science, they know, okay, this is the only answer we can come to. So we've got to make the data fit until it says that. Um, And that's not how the scientific method, you know, functions. So it depends who's, you know, quote, quote, unquote, who's, science, whose rationality, but in sort of what we would generally accept as the scientific method, if we're talking about mainstream science, the idea is that you don't have a predetermined outcome. You, you look at the data and see where the data points and follow it where it leads. That's how science sort of works. It's, 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 the question is one of truth. It's what, what, what are all the points of data and then what makes sense of this data and then the thing that science says only is in a natural sense. What are the natural cause and effects of these things? So science in itself doesn't take into consideration the existence or non-existence of God. That's simply outside the realm of the question science is asking. I dealt with that last week a little bit, but that's pretty important to understand if you're new to this conversation. Um, science can't make claims about God. It's outside the realm of science. Science is only interested in natural questions. So that's why there can be many Christians who are scientists, because they say they're science. doesn't matter where it leads. It's not seeking to answer questions about whether there's a God or not. It can't answer those. That's just outside the realm of what science can do. So if there's a miracle, God does something miraculous. I think he does, actually. He does miracles. The resurrection of Jesus was a miracle that is outside the realm of possibility in the natural realm. But science can never say, oh yeah, look at this, 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 and our conclusion is it was a miracle. Because by its definition, science can't speak on anything except the natural. So if it's by definition, a miracle is supernatural. It means it's above the natural. So science can never say this was a miracle. It can only shrug its shoulders and say that's not within the realm of science to answer. We can look at evidence for the resurrection, there's a ton of historical evidence that points in the direction of and actually makes a very, very strong case for there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. We know that for sure. But that he was raised from the dead. So we can go back and we can say, what is the evidence for this? And there's very good evidence. 
But in a sense, it's not going to be quote-unquote scientific evidence. It's going to be historical method. That's more or less what we're looking at when we're answering questions about a historical event. Um, does that make any sense? But you can, you can do, do things like this. Like in the book of John, it says that it, when they cut Jesus' side open, what came out? Water and blood. That's what the reporter says. At that time in history, they didn't know that there's a sack around the heart that after you die, there's a separation of water and blood. And that by piercing his heart, essentially, isn't that a beautiful picture? And a kind of horrible one at the same time. His heart was pierced for you. Do you know that? And out came water and blood. They didn't know that there was a sack around the heart that would make that happen. They were just reporting the history. Scientifically, we can look at it and say, did Jesus really die? And the answer would be, well, John says yes. He was dead. He didn't just swoon and was kind of knocked unconscious in the tomb. You look at John's reporting and you say, that's how you know someone's died, if that's what's coming on your side. So you can look at science in that sense, but it's not, it's not you know, proving a, a miracle that people die is not miraculous. That's actually quite natural. So you can answer questions like that scientifically and actually look at the data and say, what, is our, what does the science say about it? You can answer those sorts of questions. I am way off course. I don't even know where I am in my notes. It's good. Is this making any sense? Is it remotely helpful for anyone? Is it completely unhelpful for others? Okay, good. Hey, I like the silence. Some of you are shamed into silence. That's not true. I hope not. I hope you say this is totally unhelpful, Dave. No, nope, they didn't say it, so that's good. Um, here's what this guy goes on to say. So, so there are some, uh, there is this sort of, if you start with the data, it says with the only data we can accept is if it comes to a young earth conclusion. I'm afraid that's not science anymore as most everyone in sort of, in the scientific world at least, would understand science. So that might be a type of Christian folk science, but it's not science, because you can't start with a predetermined end point. Uh, nor can you speak about um, supernatural intervention and still call it science. It's simply, that's not what science does. It only looks at natural cause and effect. Um, however, there, we're going to see that these two areas actually overlap, that theology and science do have some overlapping areas. They can speak to each other. They inform each other. We'll see why in a minute. Here's what this guy goes on to say. I was a lay consumer of this alternate science for decades, parroting evidence I'd heard which pointed to a very young Earth. There wasn't much dust on the moon. The speed of light was slowing down. The geological strata might have happened quickly via punctuated catastrophes, and there are no transitional forms. As a pastor whose undergraduate work was in music and architecture, I was ill-equipped to either confirm or deny these declarations, but confirm them I did because they were offered up in Jesus' name and came with an implicit understanding that all faithful Christ followers believe these things about origins. Of course they're right, I'd think to myself, because the truth is that this was the only view I'd ever heard. The insidious thing about subcultures is that they're entirely self-referential. <laughs> we sit in a closed circle and speak only with people whose thoughts and beliefs mirror our own. We become convinced that our views are truth. Years later, after moving to the city, I encountered thoughtful Christ followers who believed in the risen Jesus and in evolution. Their reason for belief were the same in both cases. Overwhelming evidence. These new friends helped me to see that the precise conditions necessary for life to exist, something called the fine-tuning of the universe, um, made the best sense of the data from the natural world. 
And we can talk more about the fine-tuning arguments maybe in two weeks to come. We'll talk about that. Uh, but as Friedman Dyson, former physics professor at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton University, and one of the most brilliant and interesting astrophysicists living today said, the more I examine the universe and the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. It's just one example of how the book of creation is pointing to the creator who made it to point back to him. I think that this pastor is helpfully describing what many pastors have had to go through. Um, their education in the past is has not prepared them to think well about the book of nature and how to think about it in, in a way that they can really understand and work with it. In addition, there's been a strong subculture, and this is especially true in North America. I didn't really know that until I got to know some people from, um, you know, from Europe and South Africa and different places where this whole, like, creation-evolution debate, do you know where that happens? Almost entirely in the North American continent. It's really not a big deal uh, to British evangelicals. This question of origins, they're like, yeah, God did it. Agency, mechanism, yeah, whatever the scientists say. Probably is that, or maybe we don't quite know yet, but what we understand of the Bible doesn't limit scientists to do their work with, with utter you know, integrity, just to go for it. Those two books, they seem to speak well together in, in Great Britain and other places in continental Europe, same thing. Christians who are Bible-believing haven't wrestled with this question in the same way that it's sort of been on us in North America. And so we've just only heard, often only heard one sort of part of this. And so that, that's, that's where it, and, it, and the problem is that it, this conversation often creates, you might say, more heat than light. Um, it becomes the kind of thing where people just kind of get angry rather than really thoughtful and, and listening to others. So I'm obviously presenting my experience of understanding this. You have to hear that. If you leave at the end of these sessions and you don't agree with me, that is totally fine with me. I just want to present as faithfully and truthfully as I can what I think is a great way to understand the relationship between faith and the scripture. So you are welcome, entirely welcome to disagree with me on these questions, okay? Just so you know that. But I do think it's important for us to put out there just how varied and different um, many, in fact, I looked through the, the Answers in Genesis website because I was just interested, what, you know, kind of what's going on with some of these things. Um, and they have a whole section on, and it's sort of like pastors and theologians who don't believe in young earth. And, and the list of people on there was like all of your favorite pastors almost, you know, and theologians, all the people that you've ever kind of heard or read, almost very, very few of them are really locked into young earth creationism as the way that the text is explained and, and what the text is really about. They say, well, it doesn't really seem to be about that. It's about something else. And, and so it was just interesting. I just kind of read through and yeah, many of, and, and, and they were sort of in discussion and that was good. It was healthy to see, okay, they're in discussion with... Is this the best way to understand it? And that would be the other thing I'd want to say right now, just kind of pause, that whatever your view is on creation at this point, um, for the Christian sort of fold, there is a number of views that we're allowed to disagree over and love each other in the process. So that would be my other really major concern is, is the last thing we want to see is that this issue becomes one where it divides Christian communities, where it makes us... Um, suspect of the other, I think if, if our desire is to seek after what's true, 
to long for saying, what is the scriptures really teaching us about this? What's the best way to understand it? And how is, the, how is God calling us to be faithful with this information for the sake of the world? Those are our big questions. And, and I, that's what I'm trying to kind of offer you here. So just so you know that that's where my heart is. It's not necessarily to persuade you in one direction or another, but I hope it will help you to see that this is actually a much broader question within Christianity than maybe some of you have heard before. That's, that's really my, my goal. Um, and so I hope that's two thumbs up for you too. Um, strong subculture in North America. That's where we stopped. And it's made it seem as the, as the only possible way to read the early chapters of Genesis faithfully is to come to a certain set of conclusions on it. So, where did we get to? Where are we at now? I am going to skip a whole lot of things that I have prepared lovingly with great, great joy. And um, I just know that you just can't cover that much and just make sure everyone's following. That's my, my concern is that everyone's getting this. What we're You guys are picking up what I'm laying down here? Okay. Got it. Good. Just need to see some of those thumbs up. Um, one quick thing, and then we're going to listen to one of my favorite preachers, a guy from, uh, was at First Baptist in, uh, in Vancouver, so just a solid evangelical teacher. He's going to talk a little bit about Genesis 1 and what it means to be made, uh, the glory of being human. But just before I do that, um, I think there's three kind of acronyms on your handout. One of them is NOMA. One of them is COMA. And it is just like it sounds. <laughs> and the other one is, you guys can't even see that, can you? Super, super light. Well, okay, let me, let me fix it. I got black. Someone got my joke. <laughs> Song back in black. Okay, you got it. Okay, some, I heard someone chuckle, snicker maybe, um, just for a moment. Noma, coma, and poma. 